0: Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel IA London, but we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to today's IEA Debate. We're going to talk about the economic policy proposals of the Social Democratic Party outlined in this paper here, The End of Indifference. And I'm joined today by William Clouston who is the leader of the Social Democratic Party and by Mark Littlewood who is of course the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. I'm going to start by giving each panelist two minutes to make their opening case or against these proposals, and since you're the guest, uh, William, I'm going to start uh, with you. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, as far as I can tell, Britain is, on most policy indicators, a fairly average European social democracy. Um, So what's this all about? What do you want to change? Um, Well, we
1: called the the paper The End of Indifference uh, because our case is that uh, over the last 40 years... In most Western uh, democracies, but this one certainly, uh, liberals of various kinds have been uh, in control and they've been indifferent about things, various things, that matter. So if we go through them, they've been indifferent to the loss of manufacturing, uh, to what is made where and by whom, Uh, they're indifferent to persistent trade deficits, which we argue harm our prosperity, Uh, they are indifferent to increasing debt, which acts acts as a drag anchor on economic growth. Uh, They're indifferent to inequality which is obviously causing uh, political division. Um, They're largely indifferent to foreign takeovers of key industries, uh, key key firms. Uh, They're certainly indifferent to train uh, our own citizens in sufficient numbers for the the skills they need. they've been indifferent to generate power domestically in sufficient quantities and to get security of power generation. Uh, They've been very indifferent to build housing in sufficient numbers for people to uh, start families and indeed we'd argue they're indifferent to families. So we we think basically that the sort of do-nothing approach uh, isn't working and that successful industrial economies are not are not operating like this. Uh, I think intellectually, the root of this indifference lies in a, a species of liberalism—the uh, idea that if you just leave something alone, it will self-correct. Uh, we think this type of thinking has had its day, and I would argue that sort of exhibit A in this case is the state of affairs now. Um, finally, I think the, the the paper, the green paper, um, is uh, it's. A It's a a work of political economy, so the Green Paper has some economics in it, uh, but it's rooted in politics, really. Uh, And if you define... If economics is about what is made and what is bought and sold, uh, and politics is about who gets what, I think we shouldn't be surprised that occasionally the question of who gets what impinges on what is uh, produced, bought and sold. So that's basically our case, and we think that the
0: the end of indifference... is is approaching and it's not before time. Okay, concise enough. I think uh, there's going to be (coughs) some disagreement here. Uh, Mark, you always, uh, on your show live with Littlewood, you always ask us about the optimism barometer where uh, on a scale from 0 to to ten, zero is North Korea in a couple of years time. 10 is the libertarian utopia. Um, now, according to this paper here, we are already at that 10, <laughs> or at 11 or 12. It says here, liberals of various types have been in charge for yeah. a generation. So does this mean people like you and I can just retire?
2: Is our job done? Well, alas, no. And uh, I mean, I should start by actually commending William and the, uh, the SDP on the paper. I mean, it's actually quite nice to talk to a leader of the political party about policy. Right. So uh, although I disagree with many of the proposals here, uh, I guess I'm going to have to make an effort to speak up for indifference in in a certain number of areas. But you alluded to it, Christian, in your opening remarks. My broad starting analysis, uh, which you implied at the outset, is we presently live in a social democratic society. I don't believe that neoliberals and classical liberals have been in charge. The people who have been in charge might have paraded as such. Uh, quite often their, uh, their sort of narrative, their memes and their sound bites might be the sort of thing that folk at the IEA would approve of. But if you actually look at the metrics, well, I mean, we presently have what the highest tax burden as a proportion of GDP since the Attlee government. Uh, we've had very high public spending. Uh, high deficit uh, run since uh, 2001, I think was the last time we balanced the books. Uh, huge regulatory burdens and intervention in the market, quite irrespective of what the government's saying. So when I look through the problems, and you know, I agree with some of the problems, I'm not indifferent to all of them, I sort of conclude, well, yeah, uh, but this isn't neoliberalism failing, this is social democracy failing. Uh, we are a very, very long way from the classical liberal market economy. Uh, that I would want. Uh, I think there will be differences between William and I and what we see on problems. And I said slightly jokingly, um, uh, I'm going to speak up in favour of indifference. Actually, I would say that liberals, classical liberals, are quite indifferent about a good number of things. I mean, the, 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 that is the underpinning of uh, liberalism in many ways, to say we're neutral on how you pursue your conception of the good life. Um, it, you know, extreme examples, I'm sure William's pretty liberal on these sort of things, you know, the religion you pick, you know, are you gay or straight, uh, and can you practice that, you know, do you wear a blue jacket or a grey jacket, these are things we're indifferent to, we allow the market to solve. And I'm indifferent to quite a lot of things that I think William isn't indifferent to. But where there are problems, and William's uh, uh, outlined some of them, property market, poverty and the rest of it, I guess I approach this by looking through the lens of a state that has got mightier, more powerful and more interventionist, sadly from my perspective over the last 20 or 30 years, mm-hmm. rather than perspective of saying, "Well, God, we've liberalised everything and things are still going wrong. In fact, I can barely think of a liberalising policy over the past 10 or 12 years. There probably are a couple. Mm-hmm. But uh, overwhelmingly, we've moved in the direction of more state spending, more state intervention. So I'm sort of washing your hands and mine of everything that's gone wrong since the 2008 financial (laughs) crash, I think. Right. Okay. Um,
0: You've spelled out your differences with liberalism. Let's approach this maybe from the opposite end. Um, There might be some common ground, uh, but I mean, I've always thought of uh, social democracy as not the polar opposite of liberalism. I thought there can be overlaps. I often feel that I have more in common with a market-friendly social democrat than I have with an interventionist conservative. but then your version of social democracy i'd say is is clearly at the interventionist uh, end of that spectrum. I mean there's loads of government targets in here. you talk about targets for uh, r and d spending mm. for a trade deficit, the exchange rate uh, the growth rate of household there's a lot of central planning yeah. in there yeah. uh, Why why are you not so a socialist I, I if I you believe in central planning well
1: because the it's about where the frontier is between what the state does and what the market does and I think uh our version of social democracy respects where the correct frontier. I think, for instance, uh, in housing, it's not a it's not unreasonable for the state to have its fair share, its portion of 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 of, of, of housing development. And what we've seen, I mean, Mark says that uh, you know we, we live in a non-interventionist environment. Actually, on housing, that's not true, is it? I mean, we had post-war, we had large intervention of the state in council housing. In fact. Macmillan and uh, the Attlee government built millions of, of, of houses uh, and they've got out of that business and, and what we now expect is that the market will just sort it out and any intervention in, the, in, in, the, in say the housing market that the government's done is plus fee on, on price. I mean it's done nothing on the supply side at all which is the, is the perennial problem. So I would say uh, if you're arguing where the, where the frontiers of the state should be and where the market should be, you want a vigorous market. I mean, we're very, very pro-market. I think we're probably more anti, we're probably more pro-competition than many parties are. But in its, and, and I wouldn't, I'd never dispute the fact that for general goods and services, the market will provide uh, more efficiently. I don't think that's in doubt. Uh, and I think if you want uh, a decent tax base, you've got to have a vigorous market. You can't tax a loss. I'd accept all of that. What we're arguing about is where the frontier of the market should be and where the frontier of the state should be, and I think we've got that wrong. And I think the, it's basically the, it's the sort of last resting place, place of, of Thatcherism, which was taken on by New Labour. New Labour are basically Thatcherite. I think they spent a lot of money, borrowed quite a lot of money in the end, uh, but they didn't reclaim the, the bits that a social democratic government would do. On on housing or on on railways and things like that. The basics, we would argue that the basics of what a social democratic state uh, should do, they don't do. And they've lost confidence, I think that's the big problem.
0: Okay, let's uh, maybe stick to the the big picture uh, for a while and then go to some of these individual markets like housing. Um, I mean, we (coughs) may not live in the liberal utopia that we have in mind, but clearly. Britain is a more liberal economy on the whole than, say, France or Italy. Nonetheless, uh, we're not richer than France, we're not massively richer than Italy. Um, why
2: is Britain not benefiting from that relative liberalism at least? Yes, yeah, it's, a, it's a good question and uh, I take, um, because I take a fairly straightforward, some might say simplistic uh, approach here, I don't claim that it explains everything. Um, I thought you'd probably ask about France. So I sort of, you know, I, I called up, you know, we're, we're, which are the sort of richest countries in the world? This is on GDP per capita purchasing power uh, parity. And you're right, Christian. France is, what, about 1% ahead of us on this measurement. And you're also right that France is a higher tax, probably higher regulated uh, economy. So I don't think that you, can, you, you could ever, from a free-market liberal approach, say, ah, well, you know, our uh, taxes are 2% lower than they are in Belgium, and therefore that is going to be a certainty to ensure that the UK is actually richer than Belgium. There's a lot going on, but I think the size of the state and the burden of tax is a big part of that picture. If you were to look down this list, Singapore comes top, then Switzerland, then the United States of America. Uh, Not much sign of sort of Cuba, Zimbabwe, (laughs) or anybody else, right? So broadly speaking, there's a correlation, not a perfect correlation. So difference between us and France, I mean, I'm speculating wildly here, Perhaps the French education system is better. Perhaps its healthcare system is better. Uh, Perhaps it enforces, you know, combats crime better. There's other, there are other factors at play. Uh, Maybe its state expenditure is more efficient than the UK state expenditure, even though there's more of it. All of that's speculative. I'm not saying that. So I'm not saying that it will explain everything down to the last dollar of purchasing power parity. But my, I my today and you know across our lifetimes, one hell of a correlation between having a relatively small state, the rule of law, property rights, a lightly regulated economy and getting rich. doesn't mean that you can list those countries in order from 1 to 200 and they'll exactly map onto how rich they are from 1 to 200, but they'll map pretty closely. That's empirically what's happened, and that leads me to believe that the kind of the building block of getting rich and prosperous is unambiguously a liberal free market economy that is relatively low tax, perhaps a government that's, I don't know, say... 20% of GDP. That seems to be correlated broadly with fast economic growth. Once you're into the 40s, the 50s or higher, you get tend to get lower growth. So I'm accepting I'm making a broad brush approach. I don't think it's the only factor in play, but uh, I think it's a very big factor in play, and a scattergram of countries, as I've suggested, would show a very close correlation.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the areas in which France is actually more liberal than Britain is specifically on this issue of house building that you already raised. Um, You mentioned in the post-war years there was a lot of council house building, and Mm. that's true, uh, and that has gone down. But nonetheless, uh, I mean, on on house prices, Britain is usually the outlier, at least over the past uh, 20, 25 years uh, compared to other OECD economies. And it's not that they have massive uh, public house building. Um,
1: so, would you, an outlier because Britain's house price is very high. Yes, well, that's not a good thing. I mean, I'd argue that's not a good thing. No, no, only we of I mean, I think the, I mean, the, uh, you know, we've got onto housing, but there, there are major problems. It won't be sorted out without state uh, intervention, fairly large, you know, significant state intervention. Uh, I mean, the the the, the broader picture, I, 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 you don't want a state that's too big. I sort of take your point on that. You don't, you've got to, What we're arguing for is that the state can't be inept. And so you look at the States, the United States, which is preeminent in the example that you gave. The United States has the worst public infrastructure of any major country. People, South Koreans or Singaporeans, travelling to the New York, think you're entering a third world country. It's a disgrace. And it's dysfunctional. And uh, I would argue that you can, whether it's Philly or New York or LA, anywhere, you couldn't visit an American city and say the state is doing its job. It's completely inept. So I think what we're, we're not actually asking for very much. And some of the wealth, some of the coordinating power that you have in your country is down to the state. It's how good your state is. I, another point I would concede to you straight away is that state productivity is massively important. If you're in favor of uh, a strong and active state, you've got to be aware of how efficient and how productive that state is. Now, we mentioned Singapore, Singapore has been mentioned. Um, Funnily enough, a lot of the Tories that were post Brexit, and we need to talk about the post Brexit situation, a lot of the Tories that are arguing for sort of Singapore on Thames knew very, very little about Singapore as a a state, knew very little about People's Action Party, Lee Kuan Yew. Mm -hmm. And what they always um, forgot to uh, understand, didn't understand, was that yes, they have a comparatively low uh, tax base, that's true. But they have very high intervention in in housing. Eighty percent of Singaporeans live in public sector housing, and they have massive uh, intervention in industrial policy and massive intervention in um, in uh, transportation. So actually, that Singapore is probably—I mean, I would—I would admit actually that Singapore PAP policy has probably impacted on influence SDP policy to a much greater extent than people would realise. I don't—I don't think we are disagreeing about you. You must concede you need a, a, an efficient state. I'm arguing about where where the boundary is, what the state does. And, uh, you know, to, uh, to take another thing, broader. it we haven't really had an active industrial policy in the United Kingdom probably since the 70s. We've pretty much left it uh, as it is. And, and industri- manufacturing has gone down from about a third of GDP to about 9%. It can't actually go down much lower. I mean, a lot of that 9% apart from some specialist stuff, is just food production, you know, and processing. So we've basically allowed manufacturing to, to, to dwindle. And if you're, you've ended up in the UK with, with basically one first-rate economy in the southeast based on services, and that's what uh, national economic policy prioritises, the modus operandi is to allow that to make money and then do a little bit of redistribution. But you end up with two countries. You end up with gross inequality between Teesside side. And, and say the southeast, and ultimately you'd be better off pursuing some i mean i think the leveling up agenda is patchy very patchy but the freeport's idea is is a sound one i think that Teesside will probably do very well out of it and it should it's nice to see some of that come through but i think in general there's been lu- widespread indifference partly down to ideology about what is made where and by whom and, and that on international trade Everyone's rushing around post-Brexit or pre-Brexit saying, oh, we've got to have trade agreements. I don't I want a little bit of trade friction. I want reshoring. I want an industrial policy. I want a lower pound. I want to get a, a, a government that wants to get manufacturing going.
2: It's quite, can I come in on that? It's quite <coughs> a on to unpick un- here, and I was going to try and do this from 30,000 feet, as we were talking about airports and aircraft, uh, and we can get perhaps into some of the detail. Where I'm not, uh, you know, a kind of an anarcho-capitalist fundamentalist is yes of course I believe there's a role for the state I mean I think the state should run the criminal justice system for example right and consequently there would be questions about are you running it efficiently, how long does it take to get a case to trial, Uh, how quickly is it resolved, do people trust the system, Mm. how are victims treated in the criminal justice system and so forth I mean uh, clearly I'm very interested in exploring private sector involvement and contracting out in some of those things Mm. Uh, you know And so my starting position would be, I think the state needs to be an enabler. Whether that means that Harold Macmillan and Clement Attlee actually need to be in charge of a house-building programme. Some of it. Um, Not obvious to me they have a comparative advantage. Um, Now, you might very well want to put in place, I could even be sympathetic to this, um, you know, everybody needs to have the ability to have an affordable roof over their heads. But again, if you, I, I would say the same applies to food, you know, I want British people to be able to eat three square meals a day. Not obvious to me, I want a Ministry of Supermarkets that is actually putting bread on the shelves. Uh, you, you would do it through some other system, uh, a voucher system, welfare redistribution, and then you take your chances with Tesco's, Aldi, Sainsbury, and the rest. And um, I was actually, uh, I mean, I, 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 I've had some idea of um, William's thinking, because he's been a guest at the IA previously. But I thought you were probably going to go down that what I would call a social market model. I was actually a supporter of the SDP in 1987 when David Owen was the leader and much of its thinking then Mm. was we're not going to sell off healthcare and all the schools, we we actually want a market to function but we want to guarantee access Mm. and I think that guarantee of access is fine. Uh, but once you actually get the government actually building the houses or if we were to take another leap we're going to actually seize control of supermarkets because you know it's so important that people get food that seems to me to be overreach that's a frontier that we don't need to cross hmm. the accessibility is what i want to guarantee you can apply that to healthcare we'll make sure everybody gets an acceptable level of healthcare uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you need Matt Hancock or Sajid Javid you know, working out how much PPE needs to be sent to each hospital in a pandemic, for example.
0: Yeah. Okay, so that's not indifference. Uh, at least it's not indifference about outcomes, but more about how it's delivered.
1: Oh yeah, and and, and, and I mean, it, it, this is a good faith discussion. I'm not I'm not saying that econ liberals or econ liberal purists are indifferent about things that really matter. You you, you may actually it's justifiable to think that you could get uh, on a utilitarian basis to the same human uh, outcome the, the, the through outcomes a through different a means. means. That's 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 fine. I accept that. I just think we've got it wrong, and I think on the evidence we've got it wrong. That's that's my case. On the things like international trade and manufacturing, I don't think you anyone that actually visits post industrial uh, United States or Britain uh, can see it and should be able to see it. And it's, as I say, an economy that's based on all the money being made in one zone and then just tossing of welfare. I mean, it, you know, if, if many parts of the North, I mean, the northeast has some good manufacturing, it has Nissan and others, but, and actually it has a trade surplus, it's one of the few places, but largely down to one factory. Um, but many, many parts of the North don't. I mean, it, you know, in, in your, the, the tendency in policy terms for the government is to, is to replace manufacturing with universities. We mentioned it in the Green Paper. Universities have been massively overexpanded, It's not socially useful to have so many full universities. And the primary sources, I know they've got foreign students as well, but the primary sources of income for for universities are are government uh, funding, which is based on debt, PSBR is very high, and uh, student debt. So uh, we're very, very critical of debt. I mean, it might be one of the things we, I don't know whether we agree on. I mean, uh, for people on the left talking about modern monetary theory and just printing money, we're very, very much against that. I Mm -hmm. mean, it's not an answer to any question. It's very, very uh, dangerous in our view. So I think you need to take that seriously, and if you take that seriously in our economy, uh, it wouldn't be a bad idea to use some government levers to have a have a look at it.
0: I so are you indifferent then to manufacturing regional inequality?
2: Well, th- those are two rather different things. Uh, uh, I mean, again, as I sort of said at the the outset, uh, you know, I consider myself to be, uh, and what the IEA usually says, is a critique. Of what I would consider to be a social democratic interventionist government. So to take William's case, I, I don't want a central planner to say, oh, well, you know, we've had a long hard look at this, and you know, manufacturing ain't gonna work in Newcastle. So we've decided to build three new universities there. Tertiary and higher education is what's going to work in Newcastle. Mm. I want the people in Newcastle to work out what's going to work in Newcastle. I don't know whether that's education, training, manufacturing, a service industry, tourism, food. Football, cinema, I have no idea. I want to create the conditions in which a market can flourish. And I guess the difference between William and myself is you know, I'm deeply, deeply skeptical of the state's ability to know these things rather than to set the conditions in which we might expect uh, things to flourish. It's not obvious to me we can easily discover, however well-intentioned, at a sort of Whitehall Planning Committee, the exact number of immigrants we want to come in every year. William wants to cap it at 50,000. Mm. I don't know if that's all right, right, maybe it's 51,000, maybe it's 58,000, maybe it's 110,000, maybe it's half a million. Mm. And so I, I want a process to discover that number rather than... Uh, an expert, however well-intentioned and thought through, I'm not saying William's just will pick these numbers out of thin air, I'm just highly s- sceptical in a Hayekian way that that central plan can get you to the but right p- numbers of R&D investment as yeah, a proportion of GDP, for example.
1: But it's, it's interesting you raise immigration, because that's, that's something that intersects with you know training and, and, and your, your workforce, basically, and it is something that is is within the themes of this paper. So, you know, if you take a very liberal view, and I know a lot of uh, liberals, econ liberals, semi-econ liberals are very open borders with immigration, very pro-immigration, that's fine. But the consequences of that, I mean, what, what you're missing is a sort of domestic focus. Uh, where It's where, as I said in the intro, uh, where, you know, economic theory intersects with what, what people get, what, what, their, what their lives are like. Now, I would argue uh, if you have a, a very, very open labour market, which we have in the European Union context, the single market, we've had that. And what has been the effect? I mean, the effect, I'd argue, I mean, you, you can read papers on both sides of it, but uh, to increase the supply of labour is to, is to, is to uh, reduce the price of labour. And, and I think, so there has been downward pressure on wages, but the, probably the more important thing was just the fact that if you have a massive labour market of that kind, it, it's a massive disincentive to train anyone. So you don't have to, you literally don't have to bother. You see this in the health service, you see it, if you put an advert in, In Tyneside now, for uh, an engineer, you will get a lot of old ships' engineers in their 50s and 60s, time-served, ex-merchant navy people, you'll get very, very few people in their 20s that can, uh, you know, uh, are comfortable with hydraulics and can fit a bearing. And that's a problem, and that's been a function of a very liberal approach to the labour market. I don't think it's
2: served our people very well.
0: I'm guessing you have a liberal approach to the labour market? Would you have kept free movement, for example, after Brexit? Yeah,
2: I mean, again, there's a slight... I'd like to think that my approach here is somewhat nuanced in that I'm highly sceptical that... I mean, William might well be correct that we have too few engineers in their 20s because all sorts of national curriculums and state planning of you know encourage loads of people to do media studies for sake of argument I'm being a bit flippant but you get my you, yeah, you get my general uh, and I'm just not sure that the state could have worked out 20 years ago oh well this cohort uh, we're going to need at least you know 106,309 of them to understand hydraulics so let's uh, encourage them down that process on immigration however obviously we look at it principally through the lens of the labor market but I'm 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 not sure that's entirely the way we should look at it, I mean maybe people want to retire here and not work, Um, fine, if they like the scenery or the the general culture here. Uh, I don't think that uh, you you would necessarily only relocate relocate here for work reasons. So I've got some sympathy, again, and this would be my broad approach, what are the criteria that might allow you into the United Kingdom club, right? Uh, And I I don't necessarily think that should apply just to, well, I want to relocate to the United Kingdom. It might be that there are higher criteria before you can join the United Kingdom club. I'm sceptical about this sort of points system, again, of central planners trying to work out exactly what a baccalaureate in hydraulic engineering is worth out of a score of 500. I'm not sure. I think the market is better to work that out. But I would have an approach that is, if you're not a burden on the state, uh, and I would uh, have much more uh, of our welfareism being based on what you've paid in, mm-hmm. rather than it being they immediately... It should be more contribu- Yeah, yes. I, I'd rediscover national yeah. insurance contributions. Yeah. Uh, but if you say, look, I, I want to relocate to London, and you know, I promise I won't be you know, using state education schools, here's proof I haven't got a criminal record or whatever else it might be, yeah, you're in. And I don't know whether that's 50,000 people a year, or minus 50,000. Well, that sounds fair. What's wrong yeah, with that? Yeah,
1: no, I ha- we have more faith in planning. I think one of the, one of the uh, it's not it's of not the sort of planning you're talking y- y- When you said earlier about supermarkets, I mean, uh, you know, we're not in favour. I mean, I think a Soviet uh, ambassador came over to London in the forties, you know, and said he was in charge of the bakeries, and obviously the bakeries can lay up for themselves, and Tesco and Aldi and, and uh, uh, Sainsbury can lay up for themselves as well. But I, I think there's a there's a strong anti-planning streak which occurred. It's around the time of Thatcherism, I and mean, you tep- you know you could argue when the inflection point was it 1975 or 79. But the, the state lost faith in its ability to do any of these things. Now you do you see the consequences, and it means we're not a a terribly well-governed place. I mean that's what that's basically our case on this. And uh, and the irony is, I mean we haven't mentioned a very sort of big elephant in the room, which is the most successful. Uh, economic superpower, which is China, and and the interesting thing about China is that, uh, you know, they have gained predominance, dominance of manufacturing by, via a state capitalist route. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not the route that you advocate.
2: No, that's right, uh, but I mean, I prefer, you know, everything's on a spectrum here, right, I prefer state capitalism to Maoism. Right. Yes, well it's that. It's right. certainly so. Uh, and I would expect state so capitalism to generate better yeah. results than Maoism. Yeah. It's not completely back. Of I, I, you know, I'm not taking the view that unless you're a kind of Nozickian libertarian utopia, you're doomed. Yes. You know, there are shades of it. Western Europe is somewhat in the capitalist direction, but not wholly so. Yeah. I guess if I could put a question to William, because the, the interesting thing here, where again there might be a zone of agreement. In terms of setting the frontiers, and I wouldn't, I wasn't necessarily expecting you to address these in a in a mm-hmm. kind of green paper which is strategic, but it seems to me there's an awful lot of what you might call sort of fiddly overreach, right? So it seems on a very broad brush level, I, I can understand what you're seeking to achieve here. Uh, I'm not well, that's sure. That's just you're,
1: macroeconomics. Yeah, right, but,
2: but the, how worried are you about? I mean, let me pick a trivial example. I'm not saying this is. Totally injurious to British GDP, but you sort of said, "Well, oh, we shouldn't be controlling the bakeries or the supermarkets." Clearly not. I mean, that's mm. Soviet insanity. We're bringing in rules and regulations about where you can place a chocolate orange yeah. in a supermarket aisle. Now, I'm not saying that regulation of itself is is colossally undermining British GDP. You know, slightly irritating for the mm. chocolate orange buying and selling community, I guess. Mm. But there's a plethora of all of this, incredible micro-intervention. And I know oftentimes people say, well, which regulations would you get rid of that would really transform things? But the problem is there are millions of these Mm. things. We are telling supermarket owners and bakeries what they can sell and where they need to put them close to the check. And if we sort of stripped all that away and had a much more sort of, you know, well, our basic approach is that we want everybody to be able to afford to go to the bakery once a week, Um, well, I'd be much more relaxed. Mm. But actually what we're seeing is this central planning overreach into sort of every nook and cranny of virtually every transaction. And to my mind, this goes quite a long way, the regulatory straight in general, to explaining, uh, which you rightly point out, the chronically disappointing productivity numbers. Mm. And to my mind, this is because, again, broad-brush generalisation. We've also had the global financial crash, for example. But we're spending too much of our time going around complying and not enough of our time going around producing and complying with things which are of highly questionable benefit. I don't mm. believe it is a public policy matter of any import where a chocolate orange sits in a supermarket.
1: No, I, can't. I take the point, and I am concerned that any... I mean, people, a lot of people argue for Brexit... Uh, probably underestimated the capacity of our own civil service to gold plates and do make things even worse in that respect. I mean, people talk about the E-regulation for the speed of tractor uh, windscreen wipers and things. There's very little use of any of that, I think. I'd probably agree with you on that. Uh, My point of difference is just in the broader uh, picture. I I think we've lost faith in the state's ability to do anything. And uh, and actually, I'd take some of the attempts at you could call it privatisation, it's really privatisation playing at things, playing at shops, with the state standing behind it, in railways and power supply, I think, have just failed, I mean, just on the evidence. The train I got down from Newcastle today is on a train line that's been privatised, and and we've played past the parcel with it. And actually, I think politically, I mean, it's a point, you know, we we are a small party, but, you know, we have friends in Number 10 who read our stuff and are, are influenced by it to some extent. The Tories have missed a massive trick here because something like the railways at relatively small cost i mean this is a you know you, you're talking you know 12 billion 14 billion thing and they just spent 36 billion on test and trace for god's sake so you know for you could have they've missed a trick in 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 seeing that the railways could be a a symbol of british engineering uh, management of pride i would go for a royal charter and i would have british railways from caithness to cornwall livery it and have it something that's there. Instead, they've chopped it up into a system that doesn't really work. People take a punt on the franchises and the state gets it back. And I think, again, Mark, I'm not asking for very much. I think no railway system works macro on its own. Everyone knows that. So the state does the heavy lifting and then people play with it. Um, I'm very dubious about the the power supply companies. Uh, Again, you've got 80 companies taking a punt on a price, effectively taking a bet, it goes wrong, the state has to step in and do it. So I I think the frontier can be rationally determined, uh, more or less, and you want a strong and active state. You don't want a a state that is bigger than it has to be.
2: And do you think Mm. it is, though? I mean, mean, broad terms, and (laughs) I'm not sure I could answer this question myself, but... You know what proportion of we've, GDP we've, do you think the state well, should account I, 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 for? I've you. said about twenty. Yeah, you know, well, I I've
1: about, said about forty-five. Th- yeah, it's 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 and actually we've said actually we have said this, although it's not a current policy. About forty-two is about right. I mean, the France is about half, which is, it's the, you know, there's very little that happens in France that isn't done by the French Republic. Um, no, I, I accept that. I mean, it, it's a sweet spot. Some of these things are actually slightly. Uh, Shuknekt did a book about twelve, 12 uh, about fifteen years ago about how big the state, and if you take out the transfers, there isn't a lot of difference actually. It's not. It's what the state does that's important, and how efficient it is at doing it. I think, you know, as I say, I don't think we're asking for very much.
0: Well, that was my impression too, that this isn't a manifesto for a big state in the sense no. that, that you have uh, and, and it's a French-style level of public no. spending, but it is a bossy state. It is a state that does impose macro targets. Yes, um, because you we have some th- idea of interest rates, net migration targets, household debt. Uh, it is that th- would be a state which occupies the commanding heights.
1: It does because the as we say in the and it gets a little bit tec- technical with the profits model, but we we demonstrate that if you just sit back and let you know these trade deficits happen year after, you will you will end up poorer. You you basically destroying... You're building up liabilities, and you're you, you're creating a macroeconomic problem that you can't deal with unless you deal with it with the levers that you have, and that's that's uh, I think that's why it's justified.
2: Okay. It's Mark, qu- do you have a problem with the trade deficit? Not, no, I mean not especially. I mean I fall back on the. The uh, I mean, th- I think, you know, there is clearly truth that if every year you're buying more than you're producing. Which you go, we have. That, right, right, but that, that's yeah. clear. Yeah, but you know, every year uh, I have a um, trade deficit with my barber, uh, right, I mean, he, he never ever buys anything from me, but I buy a service from him. So uh, some IEA publications to him? Yeah, well, well he, I, don't, I don't think he buys IEA publications by barber, I mean, that might be, uh, but so, in, but I mean, it's, it's clearly true that if all I was doing was paying people to cut my hair, and I wasn't selling back to these people IEA books or no. whatever else I might be selling to them, at some point you've got a problem. I mean, you're you're, you're now. But I can imagine scenarios in which this is wholly defensible. I mean. Let's say, I mean, William's right, there's a debt problem, but a, an ageing cohort, for example, is, you know, my, my parents are no longer producing, they are consuming, they are whittling down their assets. Uh, it, they, they're in their 70s, they don't wish to re-enter the labour market, that seems to me wholly reasonable, and it might be a preference at a point of time, actually, you know, we, there is a trade-off between consumption today and investment. Uh, I don't pretend that I can find the sweet spot of it. What's the precise no, I, I right level of consumption or buying foreign produce today, as opposed to oh no, I'm yeah. going to forego I, that American holiday. Instead, I'm going to invest in building a new industrial plant in Newcastle. I, I, mean, I, I can
1: I can take your point, and I do take your point that it, you know, if it's transitory. I mean, in theory, if you if you incur a, even quite a substantial trade deficit as a country. To import uh, capital goods and then you use those capital goods to uh, gain production and exports, that's not a problem. The problem is we haven't run a trade surplus
2: since, since the 80s, right, yeah.
1: and this persistent capacity, you can only you know you can only pay for imports in three ways: the uh, the, impor, the exports you do today, or uh, by issuing some sort of liability debt or selling something you've already made, which, mm-hmm. which, the, which the successive governments call FDI. It's just, it's just selling England by the pound. And the problem is if you consistently do it, if you don't address it, if you don't think we don't make enough, we're not productive enough. This is my point about people like Lee Kuan Yew. If you read his stuff, it was all about how can Singapore pay its way? How can we make our way <laughs> in the world? And I would argue that the... The way we've been governed, the last, particularly the last 30 years, it's just been, oh, well, let's not worry about that. But you get here with a massively over-indebted household sector and a massively over-indebted government sector. Because of that, you can't deny it. And uh, another th- I mean, it, Mark asked me a question, I'll ask you a question. Do you think that I- I- if you're a sort of econ free-trade purist, it doesn't matter where this stuff is made, you can import it all from... China don't you think the pandemic has demonstrated that actually there must be a strategic a national strategic question about these things you can't say well you can't whittle away I mean you know if, if, if manufacturing is down at nine percent if it goes to five does it matter I think it really does
2: well I, I my own view and I stand to be corrected on the numbers I have looked them up in advance of this it is actually in the private sector security of supply during the pandemic I thought was jaw-droppingly brilliant I mean, my default assumption was that supermarket shelves would be bare, right? Uh, you know, we basically locked down the economy. I'm going to be going into Morrison's and I'll be lucky to get a mouldy loaf of bread and some slightly off milk. Yeah. Now, mm. it is true to say that one's favourite brand of chilli and might not quite have made it onto the shelves. I didn't know but, but but the But I actually think we, we, it, we, it was shown to be robust, mm. not feeble actually. Mm. Uh, incredibly, I mean, lots and lots of very, very fragile supply lines, but by and large, even when you lock down mm. the economy, it delivered some kind of, I, I mean, I, I'd say a thumbs up. I'm not sure Sure, I've learnt the lesson of oh my God, you know, Morrison's and Tesco's can't deliver the food. Brilliant display. Uh, I mean, we had an awful lot of problems. I think in the again in the state procurement sector, where where, you know, and if you were to compare and contrast us to Christian's homeland in Germany, where a lot of devolved decisions were made about protective equipment. Uh, it seems to me that led to sensible procurement being secured, whereas here we had Matt Hancock, you know, centrally planning how many gloves to send to Northampton Hospital. Mm. Guess what? That was there was, an in, there was an insecurity of supply there. Mm. But again, in the state sector rather than the private sector, which I thought rode the crisis, I mean, beyond admirably, miraculously. There
1: was an early scrabble for suppliers, and, it, and it's, not, it's not past people's attentions that most... You know, test equipment. And virtually everything is made in China. My broader point is that if you're content, I mean, it, I I think this is where purist free trade liberalism just just cr- crashes into national self-interest and and even uh, national citizen preference. You know, I mean, it, it, what, at what stage do you say? Oh, well, it's just not safe to have everything made. There's been a general post. I mean, if you look at the if you chop the. Economic history into blocks, and you have the sort of you know the imperial economy you had until forty-five, and then least and post-war, you had a, some sort of national economy. and Now we've had a more open economy. Um, you know, I think it's it's not clear that if you if you continue hyper-globalization, hyper-openness, and y- you have this tendency for fewer but larger producers, that's in, in e- virtually every market that's happened. You get to the state where, you know, if, if, if everything pretty much is made in a factory in Shenzhen, it's, it's not, actually. I mean, the Suez Canal blockage, I would argue that it's n- not very sensible. I think economists like Danny Roderick have been, been arguing for uh, what he describes as a softer globalism. I don't use that term. I don't really like globalism at all. But you know what he's saying, you know, it's Keynesian, really, which is better to produce things at home if you can. Would you have any sympathy for that?
2: No, I don't. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, again, I'll give a flippant example. You know, I don't want to drink English red wine. We don't have a comparative advantage in producing red wine.
1: You um, put it, yeah, there's a particular category where you've, you've pretty much got to...
2: But where I, where I would have some sympathy for you, in a, in a second-best world, but, again, I'm worried that this expands and expands and expands, is... Yeah, and you know, if you give, for sake of argument, China or Vladimir Putin, the ability to completely switch off your energy supply, if there's well, a diplomatic... E- well, uh, now, now these, uh, I, I'm sort of open to, right, well, yeah. maybe we need some sort of diversity of supply here. Yes. I would have thought, you know, the, the market should be live to that as well, I would think. You know, I want the lights to stay on in my house. Uh, and I'm willing to pay a premium to make sure that they stay on rather than pay less and hope that Putin doesn't invade Ukraine and they go. So uh, I, I, I think we, could, we might understate the way that markets could self-correct themselves in that scenario. But in extreme cases, uh, you know, munitions for example, you know, mm. let, let's hope we don't have to go to war but at some point we might have to go to conventional war. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to be entirely reliant on the CCP. There is a strategic
1: the, point which you get, yeah, I think yeah. That's
2: very but, but, but I think that doesn't apply to the vast swathe of goods and services where I'm, uh, I am in indifferent.
0: Yeah. In but isn't that part of the problem? What is strategic? Of course now we've seen that uh, personal protective equipment was strategic. If we could go three or four years back in time we would probably would produce more of it. Uh, but then you're fighting the last war again. And in normal times, there is no, no need to have constantly uh, a large domestic production of something that you might never need again.
1: I don't, yeah, I mean, I accept, uh, you, I accept some of those points. But my, my point, my broader point, is that um, a country, an economy this size, uh, Britain's size, some of these things actually are, I would argue, uh, democratic questions. You know, the, you know Roderick's idea that you can have hyper-globalisation, you can have, you can have democracy, or you can have sort of self reliance. You can't have all three. You've got to decide what you want. And, uh, I, you know, on that question, we're much more domestically focused. I mean, I, I don't want steel production to be eradicated completely. I'm not indifferent to that. And if I, I think it's a democratic question as well. And this is one of my, one of my differences is we should try and get onto this before the end. The, our, our vision of Brexit on the left was a very, very different vision to most of the Tory MPs that really promoted it. And a lot of people forgot, you know, as John Mills' Labour Leave, we were a very small party at the time, arguing for really very, very different things. And five and a half million people took it across the line. You know, people who voted for Brexit on the left wanted a very different set of things. To them, it was more about uh, national solidarity, you know, us rather than me. It was, it was about things like having the democratic right to keep... Port Talbot open. If you elected a government that wanted to keep it open, you had the right to do it. And the problem with us, with the EU, was the EU made that type of social democracy impossible because the levers of those those decisions were taken off the national uh, government and given to someone else. And a point I made to to Douglas Carswell and Dan Hannan and people I've spoken to, friends really, but I disagree with on some things. Is that what was the point of leaving the EU to be fettered by rules from the EU that stopped us doing national stuff, to to give those same uh, rules to the WTO and other people stopping (laughs) you doing so? The whole, the whole apparatus, the whole. I think we are edging. The reason I think I'm right about this historically is I think we are at the end of a difference. I think we're heading towards a more bilateral situation, and Mm. I think that's a good thing.
2: And why do you care about steel production? But you're, you're worried that we'll need munitions or something, and yeah, it's to that a, point yeah, we've
1: it's not, it's, it's not just that. I think people, the, the, the type of economics we've pursued in the last 30, 40 years has forgotten. It's, it's prioritised consumers over producers, forgetting that actually, you know, in, in towns like Redcar and Skelmersdale and Port Talbot actually produces our consumers. And so you gut your industry and then you're surprised that, you know, you have an opioid epidemic and you have social problems division so I think some of these things are worth keeping open anyway but if, if it's I'm making a philosophical point if, it's, if you decide if you elect a government that decides to keep those things up and you've sure. got to have the right to do it
2: but I don't I don't think we're disagreeing on that I mean I object to how high my taxes are but I pay them because that's what prevailed in an election I mean I don't just I don't, I don't live my life in the UK by what I think the law should be uh, so, I mean, I, a, a democratic decision can be made to bail out Port Talbot endlessly. I would oppose that decision yeah. and would hope it would be reversed, but, my but, point but it, is my, it, may, it may still have, I may no. still respect its sovereignty, its sovereignty. But, it's but my goodness.
1: point, Mark, is that the, the, the scope of a government to do that has been taken off the table and that's wrong. That's my democratic point. It's, 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 there's, there's no point in getting Brexit unless you're able to take national decisions. That's what it, for us, that's what it was about. It wasn't a so. You'd want to sleep WTO. So. Uh, WTO, I think, is, is breaking up anyway. I I, th- I think it, You know, I mean, the court system there is knackered. So I I think it, what you're seeing now is just a very very broad sweep of international arrangements changing, and people say, you know, you're going to end up in a trade war. You're in trade war every hour of the day. You. I mean, that's that's the that's the way it is. Um, I I just think it's it, we need more domestic focus. States need to make, be able to make their own social and economic bargains. That For us, that's what Brexit was about. I mean I think you know we we should think about it. people say, oh, aren't you happy that the government's being social democratic, the Tory government I, I'm not because a I don't think they are. I think remember mark that they they didn't think this through. the government didn't think this through. They have been forced into a situation where they have they're making a sort of a tilt, if you like towards rhetoric, most of it mostly on on leveling up and things. By, firstly, by inherit Brexit, because they thought it was a, 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 you know, a means rather than ends. They didn't think it through. Singapore on Thames is nonsense. They didn't understand that. And uh, the pandemic, well, that's just reacting to a pandemic. I mean, they don't I mean public spending is out of control in a transitory way, and we've got this stock of debt, which I would just put a 60-year amortize over 60 years, and it would probably be okay. There's not much you could do about it. But they didn't think they were into it.
2: No, well, I, I wouldn't disagree with you that the Conservatives don't have a thought-through <laughs> approach to yeah. government. I would wholly agree with you on, on that regard. But uh, And i probably also agree with you that, I mean, I, I treat the pandemic as a one-off. I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying our oh, public finances are wrecked because COVID. Uh, I mean, it obviously exacerbates it, but I, I'd be absolutely they happy to... They made it worse, but, but, but that trend was there before Yeah, the I mean, my God, um, we've got triple on pensions. It was interesting All here, I mean, I think you, you, you do use the technically correct figure of the... At the debt in the public sector. Mm. But that's the least of the problems. The problem is the liabilities in the public sector. We've got public sector pensions that are unfunded. Totally unfunded, yeah. Triple locking the pension. You've got inflation Uh, in the system. Exactly. A lot of this is index linked. So, uh, you know, to my mind, um, you know, as far as the public finances are concerned, Covid was basically punching in the face a patient that's already bleeding to death. The, 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 the issue is the bleeding to death, which is still happening, mm. and this has just exacerbated that. It, it's not a game-changer in that regard and should be treated as a one-off. The things that really trouble me are the trajectories, mm. the, these huge unfunded uh, commitments no, I agree. that we're going to just sort of pay on, well, in effect, a Ponzi scheme, mm. uh, and that needs rationalisation and would have been the case, although not as exacerbated, had the pandemic never occurred.
0: Mm. Well, on that note, you're clearly concerned about debt, public debt, household debt, um, but there are market-compatible ways of dealing with that as well. How about the following proposal? Let's, let's see what you make of that. Uh, why don't we phase out state pension and old age benefits, except for the means-tested ones, and replace them with pension savings through private pension accounts?
1: I'm not, I, think, I think certainly I'll take your point entirely on the fact that they're unfunded. It's a major problem, and it's actually dishonest. It's as dishonest of, as calling national insurance national insurance. It's ridiculous. It's just a tax, and it'd be you'd, it'd be far more transparent to be honest about it. Um, we, I've argued against the triple lock in the past, uh, and taken a lot of criticism for it. I don't think I think there's an intergenerational question here. A lot of people, young people, you know, can't find somewhere to live and have very little prospect of getting a house to raise a family. And yet, actually, pensions have done pretty well, and they've done well because they vote. I, I sort of agree with that. Um, if I was going to pick. Uh, a policy now, I'd probably go for the Australian uh, enforced contributions yeah. rule. I think that's because I don't think. I mean, perhaps it'll be a rare area of agreement. I mean, you know, ultimately, you've got to you've got to make people do this. People don't want to do it. There's so much high time preference in individual behaviour, and in the, certainly the way our government behaves. Uh, you've got to compel people to save, I think if you don't do that you won't have enough pension.
0: Well going back to uh, the government, um, since you also said in the beginning you want a smarter state or or a more efficient state, Um, isn't there also the problem that whatever policies you devise we have to work with the state as it is. It may be that the Singaporean state gets some things fabulously right, it could be that some Swiss cantons are run in a fabulous Mm. way but the British state uh, I mean looking at uh, things like how they've managed universal credit... yeah
1: No, I I, I think you make a really good point and I take the point I think it's very... you can try and learn from other countries and other cultures uh, and you can you know the United states English speaking country, very different culturally, so different culturally, incredibly different politically to us. Um, and you can't the idea that you can I mean it's one of the one of the problems in economics and economics is in in some crisis actually. the idea that you can have a law, you can try and work out an econo- precious little economic laws anyway, you can have a look at a society and say well that works. we will just drop it in to a different culture. it doesn't can't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of your politics has to be ground up, culture based, I think. So, I, you know, if, if that's what you're saying, I'll take your point.
2: Okay. I, I just wanted to push you a little bit on what Christian was saying, because again, this might be a point of, a, of agreement. Uh, and let's just say for the sake of argument that I, I'll concede to you that pension savings should be enforced. Mm. I, I want some opt-outs, I guess, if I was, I don't know, Diagnosed as terminally ill, I probably wouldn't yeah. want to be forced to save for my pension. I'd rather consume, you know, now in what little yeah. time I've got left. Yeah. But let's just say right it is enforced, a bit or a bit like the Singapore Health Savings Account model. Why don't we get the government out of running it? So you have to put, let's sake of argument, ten percent of your income. The government might top it up if you're below a certain level. But now the, 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 you're either putting it in an Aviva pot or a, you know, or a Prudential pot or whatever. We're not going to have the Department of Work and Pensions organising all of this. And we could realise uh, people's pension entitlements now. Why can't I say now, actually, I'm 49, I'm willing to forego my state pension. Please give me a voucher for whatever uh, actuarial value you put on that. Mm. And I would much rather invest it in this vehicle. I'm even willing to accept there should be some regulations and licensing around that. I don't think oh, I should get a. To, yeah. I no. can't just put it on a, on a horse in Chepstow, or you know, the Chepstow races. But the actual running of it seems to me the pension system, the unfunded liabilities this worries me that this is a feature of the state, not a bug. And the, this, this is what I've come to expect from governments: huge unfunded liabilities. If you, the private sector ran pensions in this way, the directors of the company would be in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so something here has gone so miraculously wrong that I'm not wholly convinced that this would be solved by replacing Boris well, Johnson with William Clouston. No,
1: but I think you have a, the state has a coordinating role and it can make law. It's stat- you can create this by statute, I guess. But you're, I don't, I don't have a, a problem with uh, an enforced. Contribution being invested, it has to be invested in the private sector anyway. You want to return, yeah, yeah. so no, I would sort of take your point on that. I, th- I must have a look at the Australian system because I think that is the system. I think you're you're forced to make the contribution, but the there is some flexibility. I think. Yeah. W- but we, y- you, you've got to make sure you don't, uh, you know, snatch victory uh, uh, defeat from the jaws of victory because, again, the government's are inclined to tinker, and particularly where vo- votes are involved. OK, well, well you've, got, you've got your pension, I'll let you just cash out. And how many, how many pensions now, pension pots? If you've got a private pension pot that you not a state one, that is unfunded and, 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 and rather, un, uh, you know, it lacks that fundamental, but if you paid for it yourself, it won't be as big. And, and your, your ability to say, right, I'll just cash it in, 25% of it on a Ferrari... Again, it's high-time preference. It's exactly what a pension shouldn't be, really. You, you might argue on your side that the people should have the right to do that. I think government should be trying to get these things right and get people to take long-term, sensible decisions, and we're not doing that now.
0: Well, okay, at least so there's some agreement of, uh, for a private uh, savings-based pension system of sorts. It's just yeah. that you would want to have very liberal rules around it and yours would be quite prescriptive about what you can do with it and when. Mm-hmm. Um, let's end on that note because that's all we got time for. Um, thank you very much, both uh, of my panellists today. And thank you for watching. Special thanks, of course, to our donors. Uh, you know who you are. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel because we've got several of these events lined up.